Hello, welcome to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast. I'm Fatima Matuk, I will be your host today, and I'm very happy to welcome Olympia Borchilaro, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of, Politica, of Politics and International Relations at the University of Westminster. Welcome, Olympia, and thank you for being our guest today. So um, I would like to start with asking you basically why LGBT politics? Hi, Fatima. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast and for the lovely introduction. Um, why LGBT politics? I think that's um, I think that's a really interesting question. Maybe because I kind of never considered it before, um, but I think I think I I started nurturing an interest in. LGBT politics specifically after uh, taking a course uh, in the anthropology of gender um, during my undergrad degree at SAAS. Um, and it absolutely blew my mind. Um, so I guess I had al already kind of come out, if that's how you want to call it, as like queer or la lesbian. Um, but that course, like, completely, I guess, like politicized um, or enabled me to see like the political kind of social, you know, dimensions, kind of more collective dimensions of like gender and sexuality in ways that I hadn't considered before. Um, and I guess more than LGBT politics, really what I became interested in this is this idea of queer politics, right? Um, or I guess the politics of gender and sexuality more broadly, but really, I think the thing that really kind of fascinated me was the, the, the task of looking at how things that may appear or at least did appear to me at the time, so personal, so intimate, so private, right? Such as gender and sexuality. I mean, what is more intimate and private than that in, in a way, right? But, but actually these things have like massive, tremendous social, uh, political, uh, importance um, and so have like a more kind of like overtly political collective dimension um, so they can be both kind of mechanisms of control but also um, practices of emancipation so I guess I, I, I found that so fascinating basically um, and I still do I mean that that I think that key kind of point is really what still to this day drives so much of my work and and for that I, I'm also massively grateful to you know the person that that convened that course and I think I mean maybe we can talk about that later but I think that what she taught me and what she showed me a lecture can do to you also really structures and affects and the way I think about pedagogy and the think I think about the classroom so I know you're both an academic um, and also an activist, and I'm wondering, did you ever find yourself facing challenges, navigating tensions between your identity as an LGBT or queer activist and as an academic? I would say yes, definitely. I think it's interesting. I don't think I, I think of academia and activism as separate things. Um, so, I mean, at least for me, like my queer activist and like queer academic work is very much intertwined. Um, but I think that there are definite tensions between 
this idea of activism and in particular this idea of academia I would say um, I mean I can think of like two I think two main examples kind of shed light on in the ways in which this tension like manifests itself in practice so I think I think one thing that used to happen a lot during my so my, I did my PhD kind of looking at some of the limits of LGBT diversity politics and this idea of identities and this idea of like celebrating diversity maybe isn't necessarily uh, the best way of like tackling injustice um, and I was also looking at uh, you know how diversity can run the risk of becoming like a tick box exercise. So on the one hand, um, I was very kind of critical of these forms of diversity politics whilst uh, sort of in the institution. So this was kind of the activist dimension, um, but I also sort of, it, it, to me, it was very kind of funny and interesting and weird at times, the ways in which my diversity work, because I was doing a critical diversity PhD about LGBT diversity, whatever, how that was often and at times reappropriated by the very institutions to sell itself as diverse. Look, we have all this kind of very, we're doing, we have all these PhD students doing research on diversity um, and how therefore my critical work was sort of, well, what I hoped could be critical work was reappropriated to serve the very systems that I guess I was trying or seeking to oppose or challenge through the work. So, and I think that that happens you know, that, that's just an example, but I think that that's one form in which this tension between academia and activism, I guess, manifests itself in, you know, these worlds. Um, but also on the other hand, so I think this tension can, can also look very different in a way. And I think that this is also sort of, I would say more kind of interesting. One time, for example, a professor in the business school here sort of suggested I would I was not suited to a career in academia, but I would be better suited to a career in politics or activism or something um, because I was clearly too passionate about my research topic, LGBT politics, LGBT activism, uh, to be objective, etc. cetera. Um, and I thought that was a very, very strange thing to say, <laughs> um, specifically, you know, because I have never thought of these two things. I mean, and I'm, I'm convinced that they're not separate things. Um, uh, I've never seen them as separate things. Um, so, and I think that, that those two examples are like kind of two sides of the same coin in a sense of this coin of like tension between uh, activism and LGBT activism and academia. But I, I mean, I think, I think, I don't necessarily think that's a, ne I, I don't necessarily think these tensions are a negative thing, you know, especially if we consider like the state of neoliberal academia today, like I would hope that activism stood in tension to that, or, you know, at least <laughs> in tension. Um, so I don't necessarily see them as uh, these tensions as um, sort of things that need to, to be resolved, so to speak, uh, if not as sort of important contradictions that must be deepened um, in order to kind of move academia and turn academia into something better, which I also think we might talk about. So you mentioned how you do not separate these identities. I really like the thought and also the course you took at SOAS. So if you reflect back on your journey in the UK higher education system, do you feel you had access to a good rep representation of yourself in the curriculum, the classroom, or even the university overall? I think that's that's also a very good question because it's not something 
that I think I considered before. I guess my question would be sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I guess the reason I I don't I think I hadn't considered this question before is because I I don't I'm not sure if I've ever really thought of it as in terms of representation. Um, I think I've thought of it more in terms of um, do the kinds of versions of the world proposed, put forward, offered, enabled in this curriculum, let's say, include people like you? And what do the people like you that this curriculum, that the world making projects that this curriculum is enabling, what do those people do? like how are they treated and what can they and cannot do um so i think i think i'm wary i'm a bit wary of this word representation i think because i think i i think you can you can represent people without necessarily working to create versions of a world that actually makes space for them you can represent them without creating worlds in which they flourish so i don't know if represent i've, I've never thought of it in terms of representation um but more in this other in this other way. So if we um, think or if you think of the um, queer studies as a discipline, mm -hmm. um, what spaces within queer studies do you feel have been colonized? I guess there's this thing that I that some people I mean would call the liberal perspective or I guess liberal spaces, which I think, um, and, and obviously as others have argued, like I'm, I'm, I'm building on the work of many before who came before me who have also sort of painstakingly sort of pointed this out, um, that in particular liberal perspectives and liberal perspectives on LGBT rights, I would argue in particular, and perhaps also like the feminist side of things, um, Uh, are deeply rooted, in fact, in a logic of coloniality um, that defines the West and the Global North in particular, also as the reference or the thing against which we measure this thing uh, as called the global standard of progress. I mean, I don't know if, if sort of how familiar people might be with um, sort of the liberal perspective in general, but it's very much kind of based on this like linear idea of progress, um, which reifies, sort of takes the West as the standard, but also kind of ignores, for example, uh, not only the role I think that colonialism played in institutionalizing homophobia then, but also the role that imperialism and global financial institutions today play in reproducing homophobia uh, across the world uh, and in the global South. Um, so, I mean, and, and there's like fantastic work uh, here in this area, which shows, which kind of explains why and how liberal liberalism, which kind of these ideas really stem from are, are is actually um, driven by deeply racist assumptions. Um, and in particular, uh, you see this a lot sort of in terms of the kind of assumptions and readings which underpin uh, sort of the ways in which like things such as like homophobia in Africa are read like that is I think where it's it's sort of obvious um, that that there's kind of a lack of complexity but also how often this lack of complexity turns into really kind of an exercise in the reproduction of whiteness and I think that's also another theme that that 
is important to, to, to sort of think about how it's actually not simply an innocent, so to speak, lack of complexity, but it's sort of very much part of like a system that reproduces whiteness as the norm, et cetera. And I think, um, yeah. And, and I also think in particular in the kind of queer studies field and an LGBT studies field in relation to this question of like, you know, what spaces have been colonized and or are racist is like, the, I think another most kind of the most obvious example is kind of the, the categories we use uh, to understand gender and sexuality um, are often also a product of coloniality and Western understandings of identity and subjectivity. Um, and a lot of the work that I guess, you know, anthrop for example, anthropologists um, have been doing over the years is sort of showing how LGBT is a kind of very modern and very Western way of understanding gender and sexuality. Uh, also queer is, you know, and, and there's, in fact, there has been efforts over the past few years from people like H. Sharif Harikuti Williams of kind of proposing more kind of Afrocentric understandings of queer, which might or might not make sense across the global South. But I think the key thing here is like sort of the cat, you know, the, again, this, this work of universalizing uh, the categories of gender and sexuality kind of reduced to this idea of LGBT-ness. Um, that works, has worked to erase often race history and geography from LGBT studies uh, and to produce kind of ra a race-free, which really means a white kind of understanding of difference. Um, and, and I think some, you know, much of the decolonial work that sort of is happening in the field now sort of tries to challenge that. Um, but I also think I also think that there's a tendency, you know, it's like thinking of like, again, this to, relating to this question, um, I, I, you know, also queer perspective, I think queer perspective, you know, it's like there's tension between liberal perspectives and queer perspectives, but like queer perspectives also, I think, um, are complicit in this reproduction of whiteness and, and and there's like you know recently Rahul Rao I mean one I think I've been following his work closely precisely because he's trying to sort of uh, push I guess queerness and or look at like the inter interconnections between queerness and postcoloniality and um, um, and I guess queer perspectives sort of challenge this narrative of progress, sort of reject this idea of progress that is a liberal understanding of progress, but in so doing, I guess, uh, are still anchored in the sort of geopolitical space of the West where rights have been achieved and therefore they can be rejected, right? So you see kind of these, like, the ways in which, like, the global North and West are still taken in reference points across the field of, like, this idea of LGBT studies and queer studies. And now with, with these spaces in mind, what does decolonizing queer studies involve to you? I think at a minimum, I would say, like at the very, very least, um, it should involve looking at the role that colonialism played uh, in its uh, inception and construction and the development of key concepts um, of the field and the kinds of understandings of the world that it promotes uh, and enables. And through that awareness, uh, sort of enhance its future development in ways that are non-colonized or I guess decolonized, decolonial. I also think it's, you know, it's more than bringing in decolonial themes or, you know, 
but it's it's actually entails kind of actual permanence decolonization like I say this I think because you know I think increasingly and this is something that scholars from the global south in particular have been pointing out that we've seen uh, what I think Leon Musavi has called, uh, you know, decolonizing without decolonization. Um, and, and Chisomo Kalinga, who's like um, also sort of a, a feminist uh, anthropologist, I think working in Malawi has, has, has recently kind of, I was following this thread on Twitter in which she, she sort of calls out, but also like points out the ways in which decolonial work is increasingly becoming gentrified by global North scholars. I think it's important to sort of also recognize that that's happening, I guess. And I think in my field, kind of what does decolonizing LGBT studies involve to me in particular in my field, I think in, in particular with, the, the, with regards to, this, to international relations and politics and the kind of main concepts of uh, the broader field. Um, it, it involves looking at um, think like how the structure of the global international system upholds white supremacy, how it omits race and thus, and thus privileges whiteness and marginalizes global South voices and perspectives, um, like systematically. Um, again, in the in the kind of key concepts used in the field, and this happens, I think, and it, and I think, unfortunately, like kind of connecting to what I was saying before, this happens also through decolonial work, you know. Um, so and and so I mean and so maybe to this extent, maybe we might have to question the extent to which we can even decolonize knowledge about gender and sexuality from within the academy. I think that obviously both things are not mutually exclusive. Um, but I'm very skeptical of, I think increasingly so, um, of the idea that the academy can be seamlessly decolonized. And um, you've mentioned some really interesting ways of how or what decolonizing queer um, studies involves. What do you think is something queer activists and academics can do to help these processes of decolonization and anti-racism? Yeah, I mean, I always start with this idea of at a minimum, because obviously, like, the shape and form this can take are, are many and multiple and kind of infinite. Um, I think at a minimum, again, kind of interrogating one's positionality and privilege and theorizing and doing activism, I guess, not as a confessional sort of to, like, come, you know, come out as white or privileged. Um, but to sort of not speak sort of on behalf of others, but also like kind of as a starting point, really to sort of asking yourself if you should A, be leading this com particular conversation um, and or if you should be taking up this space. Um, and if not, uh, you know, how to step aside and support those who should be leading the conversation uh, in ways that are also like non-tokenistic and like, that in which there is a retribution for that labor, um, like that immense painstaking labor. Um, I mean, I've been blessed by being around colleagues, including you, including Jennifer and including others, um, which have shown me what decolonization can, the forms that decolonizing and decolonization can take with regards to UK you know, higher education in particular. And in this sense, I think it also kind of involves 
you know, taking seriously and challenging the broader contexts in which UK academia and activism are themselves embedded, sort of the hardening of national borders, like the fees, the hostile environment, like the climate emerge, like, do you know what I mean? The, the list is infinite and it kind of involves recognizing the role that universities today continue to, I mean, in the past and today, uh, continue to play in colonialisms, uh, like via lucrative investments in the occupation of Palestine. And that's some, something that we've spoken about before. And I think is like also very pressing. Um, so it's, you know, it's about kind of recognizing the involvement of and, and participation of universities in colo uh, co current like forms of coloniality and colonization rather than seeing them uh, uh, apart from these systems. Um, but I also, I think, you know, so there's this kind of broader question, like let's call them broader connections and broader context. I mean, they're broader, but really they're not that broader, but I think just for the sake of this argument, but I also, but also I think more mundanely, right? Sort of what can activists and academics do? And I think, you know, I think more, more it might appear more mundane, but perhaps, you know, it, it, I think it involves also like, supporting academics of color when they are bullied by institutions for speaking up against injustice like you know that might appear as more kind of obvious but um you, you'd be surprised and and, and all, all of this stuff of course is connected maybe it involves abolishing the university uh altogether um maybe that's what activists and academics can do to help the process of decolonization We've talked a bit in a previous question about the field of politics and international relations. And um, so I know that part of your path was in a business school context. And since decolonization takes a different form in each discipline, I was wondering what spaces within business schools specifically do you feel have been colonized and how can we approach decolonizing business schools? I mean, again, I think it involves, you know, what does decolonizing the business school kind of entail? Uh, it involves looking again at the role of that colonialism played in the construction and development of business studies, key concepts and understandings of the world. You know, how looking at how management and management concepts and ideas developed in service of colonialism and extractivism, like um, uh, in the business school specifically, um, you know, but broadly, I mean, specifically because I'm talking about that now, but you know, the knowledge production system has, has erased race uh, from its scholarship. Um, it's erased the role of indigenous genocides, uh, black chattel slavery and contemporary capital accumulation. Um, and here, you know, sort of the, the specificity of the kinds of knowledges that business school produce, and by specificity, I mean the whiteness is also like kind of uncriticable because it is universe, it's made universal. So it's impossible to sort of, or hard or difficult, or that kind of work is silenced because you know, how dare you critique the, no, 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 simply how dare you critique the universal, but, but how can you, like, it's universal, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's elevated to a status that 
is beyond critique in some ways. And so here also the relevance of kind of race to organization studies is restricted to very niche areas, um, whereas the mainstream or the bulk of business studies scholarships remains uh, unchanged and unscathed by uh, race um, or the, the sort of the understanding that concepts are raced and that um, uh, also the key understanding that sort of, I think in moving business schools towards decolonization is that capital, I mean, this is a kind of an interesting kind of entry point, but that capitalism is itself racist, right? And to the, and to the extent, um, you know, in business schools, the racist foundations of capital <laughs> and capitalism have been largely ignored, right? And so to the extent that knowledge produced within business schools ignores race and does not, you know, challenge the central organizing tenets of neoliberal capitalism, it upholds white supremacy. And, and I think this also, I mean, kind of, because there's like in academia in particular, there's like this kind of interesting relation between, you know, half of the work we do is research, the other half is teaching, and the other half is like admin and stuff. <laughs> um, but so kind of, it's, it's also important to sort of think about how this affects like, the teaching and the, you know, in particular, like students of color, like it tells them that their critiques and experiences have no real place in the business school, right? Um, and, and yeah, and, and on the snow, I mean, I just wanted to, you know, here I'm, I mean, what I'm, what my thoughts on this have been, again, you know, there's, there's amazing, fantastic people kind of doing this work. Um, with in particular with the business school, I mean, I can think of, you know, Sad Vidar and like Angela Martinez and, and um, Deborah Bruis um, and others. Thank you. These are amazing suggestions and exactly what we're looking for, really. So now if, if we think of the curriculum, so specifically your experience in the classroom as a lecturer, also as a student, in terms of what is taught, how it's being taught, are there aspects you've noticed in the curriculum that have colonial undertones or are even explicitly colonial? I mean, yes, of course. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess my two main fields are anthropology and international relations, both of which have like heavily colonial under, I mean, anthropology literally was created in the service of colonialism to like improve colonialism. Um, but I mean, I guess well, I'll talk about IR because international relations, because this is the kind of the field I'm working in now. But you know, if you, it's kind of jarring if you think about it. But sort of international relations is a field that is obsessed with um, things such as combating terrorism and securing sovereignty and sealing borders and sort of winning the games that nations play or whatever and these questions are or interests are deeply uh, and explicitly colonial uh, and uh, racist in their genealogy thank you and if you um so you you also teach part of your current work is that you teach as you mentioned um as a lecturer what what do you think you could do to decolonize your curriculum yeah, I think I think in my case, I've been thinking about this a lot um, since I've recently kind of 
taking a bit more ownership. Um, and I, I mean, as an early kind of career junior, uh, even as a PhD student, you rarely, I think if ever have control over the curriculum, but um, I mean, and I'm sort of the, the, the people I teach with have, are also kind of on board with this idea um, and we sort of have these conversations. But I think, I think in, in our case, uh, sort of in my case, our case, uh, it involves um, teaching, I think teaching international relations in a way that does not revere or celebrate or accept the canon and the canons that I've just mentioned now the kind of interests and obsessions of IR, uh, but really kind of cracks open the canon for contestation um, and questions, not only questions whether the canon is universal, uh, but shows again, kind of not simply not universal, it's also deeply racist and sort of uh, underpinned by a logic of coloniality, hegemonic understanding of the world from the perspective of white supremacy that is elevated to the status of theory and the universal, right? And the goal of this kind of decolonial curriculum or approach to IMR, I guess is this key, also this key idea I think that I've been thinking about is that, you know, worlds become legible through a variety of modes of understanding them and that kind of race, gender, sexuality, locality, are not again just like individual things, but are you know are systems of power that that you know socially constructed systems of power, of course, but still powerful uh, that structure this kind of understandings. Um, and I think you, you, this kind of work of uh, contestation, so to speak, of the canon, uh, you do partly by including global south perspectives and authors on the curriculum as they should, um, but it's kind of but I'm wary of that being another tick box exercise in kind of the end game. Um, I think that only works if in a decolonial sense, if these perspectives are used to therefore deconstruct the canon and the universal and not simply to add different perspectives to the mix, right? It's not simply to show evidence of more complexity, but to sort of show that really this whole idea of the universal was BS to, to begin with. I try, you know, and, and also it's kind of an, 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 a never ending learning. Like I, I really try to sort of have these conversations with my students. Um, and obviously that's not always possible to sort of the change, like the kind of the effect of these conversations is not always tangible right away because you know when when I have the chance to have these conversations the term has already started the the module is already pretty much finalized like I can change things and bits in between um so I often sort of change but 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 it's kind of a, a like an ongoing conversations with students um that then I try to reflect upon and, and incorporate in like future modules um so, but I think recently I've been thinking about this kind of, um, particularly this kind of, this idea of like, um, the key idea being that not to revere the canon, but opening up to, to contestation and, and what happens when we do that, right? If, if we would 
imagine to be in a in a university or in a world where lecturers do these kind of things that you mentioned do you think um, is it reasonable to attempt decolonizing curricula when our reality and the world is very much still colonial <laughs> um great great question fatima i mean i guess i think the the word that throws me off here is reasonable i think you know It is reasonable, I think, to the extent that it is reasonable to support colleagues and students of color who are bullied by the university, even though that doesn't necessarily change our colonial reality, if you see what I mean. It might, but it doesn't necessarily. So I think we can do both. <laughs> um, and I think as long as decolonizing doesn't become a tick box exercise, or something you can do for clout or something that is good for business because that's what I'm waiting, you know, because of my research in, on LGBT politics, I'm waiting for, you know, decolonization, like, I mean, anxiously in a negative sense, waiting for decolonization to be made good for business because, you know, that might happen as it does. But um, as long as we sort of fight against those understandings of decolonization, um and against the idea that it can be ever truly over then maybe then it is reasonable sort of to fight the fight on multiple fronts um i i i really like this quote again from chisomo kalinga i'm very sort of grateful to to her for um putting out accessible like interesting thoughts and opening up conversations um, on Twitter. This is all happening. Um, but it's this, this idea that sort of the decolonial work is sort of not compiling a list. It is nurturing a community. And I think to the extent that, you know, whatever you do in terms of decolonizing is kind of nurturing that community, then it is reasonable to, 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 to do that. <laughs> I have one final question um, for you, which we like to really ask all our podcast guests. What is something you'd like to see develop within higher education in the next 10 years? Ha, this is a very difficult question. I mean, I, I think the first thing that comes to my mind would be to abolish the fees. Um, I don't, I don't, I've learned not to, um, like to be nostalgic for the university pre-2011 that was you know free of fees or whatever um as i think that 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 is also a dangerous kind of idea to think that you know universities were hubs of great critical thinking and then the tories or the lib dems came along and the fees were introduced and that sort of stifled those kinds of critical i think that that's not the kind of that's not an accurate narrative. And I think that's like a very dangerous idea, but I, I, but I think, you know, as, as someone who went to uni, like right on the cusp of that change from, you know, the university being free to it being, how was, however much is it now? Um, I think that that has a massive, has, I mean, I've seen sort of firsthand the implications that has had for both staff and students um in terms of making academia knowledge into this kind of marketable product that um 
that stifles really kind of the point of what this whole, you know, even decolonizing is about, right? And we've seen this, I've also said firsthand. Um, so I would like to see a free university um, and also many other things, but but I will focus on, on that. And free, let's say, both financially, but also perhaps, you know, we can interpret that idea of freedom more, more broadly. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Olympia, for all the thoughts you shared with us today and um, thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much, Fatima. This was a pleasure. To find out more information, access our tours or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ. Mm -hmm.